Hey everyone, welcome back to the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. I'm Pat Stratton, and as always, I'm your host. The last time on the podcast, my father had just been exploited by the North Vietnamese for propaganda purposes. Pictures of that event were printed in the April edition of Life magazine in 1967. Video of the event was also broadcast on all major American news networks. The Vietnamese didn't know it yet, but my father had pulled a fast one on them. When the video of the bowing incident played in the United States, it was clear something was terribly wrong. The Manchurian candidate-like behavior of my father told the story. It was unclear at this point if it was torture, drugging, or brainwashing, but the world started asking the North Vietnamese lots of very difficult questions. Next time on the podcast, we'll pick up the story where we left off back in the zoo after the bowing incident, where my father was still sick and in very bad shape from all the torture. During this episode, however, we're going to have a little bit of fun and have my father tell us about the training and the workup period prior to leaving for Vietnam. I'll also be asking the Yankee Air Pirates some fun questions during the lead-off lightning round. One last note, there's a special YouTube link embedded in this episode that shows a quick behind-the-scenes video of my father and I recording this episode. The video also includes some pictures of some of the aircraft and the ships we discuss in the podcast. If you are listening to this today from the Apple Podcast uh, app on your phone, simply click on the details just under the title of the podcast. The link should appear just below that. Just click it and play. Simple as that. So let's get right to it. We really hope you enjoy this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate. How is the Yankee Air Pirate doing today? I am just short of magnificent. All right, we're going to do something a little different like we talked about today. Uh, We're going to start off uh, doing something a little fun called the lightning round. And uh, everybody's seen all kinds of cool Navy fighter pilot movies uh, like Top Gun. And everybody has really cool call signs. They like Hollywood, Maverick, Goose. And your call sign was the beak. So what the heck is up with that? Well, we had a flight surgeon who had a little bit of class in my first squadron, VA-94, and he called me Sereno because I had uh, the magnificent nose that you see today, (laughs) and I also was the world's greatest lover. I had yet to meet your mother, and so I really fit there. By the time the second cruise came along, my wingman, Gil Troutman, who obviously was named Fish for his nickname, decided that that was too classy (laughs) and that I should be called the Beak. All right. So that's how that all came about? The Fish made me the Uh, Beak. Trout, okay. Troutman did that to you, huh? Um, Okay, how about your favorite plane? Favorite plane ever flown? FJ-4 Fury. Interesting. I thought you were going to say that 
A-Force Skyhawk, A-Force Forever is what I see around your house all the time. I may ask you a little more about that later. How about the highest you've ever flown? Highest I've flown is in the FJ, 42,000 feet. Okay. And how about the fastest? The fastest I've flown is probably, once again, in the FJ at sea level, just approaching uh, the speed of sound. So back in those days, in the 50s and 60s, that's pretty darn fast. Uh, in perspective for today, with today's aircraft, it's not that fast. But back then, you were really pushing it pretty hard. Oh, that was spectacular, yes. Yeah. What did that feel like? Well, it actually felt the controls got stiff and the plane rumbled, and you just felt that you were on top of the world. It was great. Yeah, uh, and how how far off the were you out over the ocean when you did that? No, I was in the desert. In the desert, Reno, Nevada. Okay, all right. Well, excellent. Um, all right. I know. In addition to the cruise you did over to Vietnam on the Ticonderoga, you did a couple of other cruises on the Ranger. So I'd really like to know what your favorite port is that you've ever visited, and I hope you don't tell me Vietnam. Well, unqualified, Hong Kong. Hong Kong, The best right. liberty port that any sailor could hit. Okay. Um, very good. Well, this next question I'm going to ask you, if there's any young people out there listening and uh, they might want to consider being a Navy pilot one day, uh, I think one thing people might want to know is, do Navy pilots really have a girl in every port? Navy pilots, at least in their own mind. Have a girl in every port. <laughs> All right. So there's something to hope for on that one, at least. It's a legend. Okay. Um, in all your years of flying, how close have you been to actually running out of fuel in your aircraft before you landed? In a T-33, uh, with about 30 gallons of fuel left, down almost to zero visibility, being vectored out to sea to eject if I couldn't find Galveston Municipal Airport. Was it bad weather at the time? I had bad weather up to about fifteen to 20,000 feet and no radio until I got right close to the ground. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, tell me about the worst storm uh, that you've ever had to ride out at sea on a ship. We had a typhoon uh, on board Ranger Mouse probably about 1960, we had a typhoon off the coast of Japan, and we actually had blue water coming over the bow of the ship. And at that time, the bow of the ship probably was 60 feet above water. So you're looking at 50 to 60 foot waves. Wow, that sounds pretty intense. A lot it of people was. getting seasick. Well, you figure that at that time, the Ranger weighed in at about 95,000 tons, and it was being tossed like a a cork, and I was too busy hanging on to get sick. I don't know about the others. Okay. Um, tell me about the scariest carrier landing you've ever had to make. Was it at night? Night landings seem like they would be crazy. Well, for me, night landings were uh, easier than day landings, which is a whole other story. But the scariest landing I ever had was my very first carry a landing. I was flying from Bloody Barren Field in Mobile, Alabama, out to the USS Saipan. And uh, at 5,000 feet in an SNJ-5. And the flight deck of the Saipan looked like it was the size of a postage stamp. 
and I was supposed to make six traps on that Hummer, and I was scared shitless. <laughs> but but you made it. All six, six for six. All right. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, all right. I, I think everybody that's listening to this podcast today has seen a lot of uh, pilot movies. Uh, Top Gun and is probably the most popular of them. Everybody's seen this. And they want to know... Um, is the life of a Navy pilot really as glamorous as it's made out to be in Hollywood? No, the life that we lead really isn't all that glamorous, but it is a grand life. It's an exciting life. We get a lot of attention and a lot of respect. So I don't mean to downplay it, but it's certainly not Hollywood. Okay. All right. Very good. Well, my favorite movie of all time, my favorite flying movie is a movie called The Great Santini. And there's a fantastic scene in the Great Santini in the Officers Club over there. Anybody that's ever seen the movie probably knows what I'm talking about. And I'd like to hear from you. Is Friday evening beer call at the O Club uh, anything like uh, in the movie Great Santini? Overseas at the QBO Club, it is exactly like the Great Santini. Here on stateside, no. Stateside's rather sedate in comparison. Yeah. In, in the good old U.S. of A., kind of politically correct, but overseas, things kind of get crazy. Huh? No, it was it was exciting here uh, at stateside, but at least we weren't animals. We weren't swinging from the chandeliers and punching each other out every five minutes. Okay. All right. Well, it sounds like fun. Um one more question before we talk, uh, start to talk today about uh, the workup and the training prior to the cruise on the Ticonderoga over to Vietnam uh, when you left in, in uh, late 1966. Um, I want to talk a second about you surprised me with one of your answers. When I asked you before what your favorite plane was, I was almost certain you were going to tell me it was the A4 Skyhawk because you have uh, A4 Forever shirts that you wear all the time. You got uh, pictures all over your house, A4s Forever. You had a license plate, A4s Forever. But you tell me your favorite plane is the FJ4. So tell me about that. You surprised me today. Well, I'll give you another surprise. The second uh, most favorite airplane was a glider, the Schweitzer I-26. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. The A-4 is a wonderful, absolutely delightful airplane. I spent over a 1,000 hours flying in that Hummer. Uh, I was shot down in it, and it really never let me down because I did it to myself in the airplane. The airplane did it to me. It was an ever-loving, forgiving air machine and a great affection for it. But just pure animal lust after airplanes. The FJ was it, and the glider, the 1-26, was next. Was the FJ-4 significantly faster than the A-4 or more maneuverable? The FJ was more maneuverable. It was designed as a fighter aircraft. Actually, it was a takeoff on the Air Force's F-86 without an afterburner. Okay. And uh, it was designed as a fighter airplane. And the reason that I enjoyed it so much that the aircraft that we had 
while we were waiting to get our A4s for about a three-month period, had no guns in them, had no racks, had no rails, had no tanks. So figure it was stripped down like a race car. So for three months, we could play with this thing and explore the entire flight envelope with it. Wow. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Well, so here's what we're going to do next. Um, uh, what this episode really is all about is your workup and your training prior to going over to Vietnam. And you were flying the A-4 Skyhawk. So um, tell me about the A-4 Skyhawk. Well, the A-4 was designed in 1952. It first flew... I think in 1954, uh, stripped down for a while. It uh, held the uh, closed course non-afterburner speed record for jet aircraft. It was that fast. Uh, it was a tiny thing. It was probably 37 feet by 35 feet. I'm six feet tall, and I had to have the seat all the way down, and the canopy still touched the top of my canopy. They had to put steel toes on uh, on our flight boots because we might leave our toes behind on the dashboard as we ejected from the aircraft. There wasn't much clearance at all. There wasn't one piece of wasted space. More importantly, as a flying machine, it was an ever-loving, forgiving flying machine. It was inherently stable. If you got in trouble and had enough altitude, all you had to do was to take your hands off the throttle, put them in your lap, and the airplane would eventually unscrew everything you screwed up and start flying straight and level again. Uh, it could carry a whole mess of weapons of infinite variety on both our center stations and our wing stations. Uh, we had two 20-millimeter cannons, which were kind of a joke because although they fired at about 8,000 rounds per minute, we only had 52 rounds per per gun. I think they were there just to make us feel good. <laughs> uh, and actually, you could fly this plane by wire. Now, that means something different in today's age. In the 1950s, literally, you could fly it by wire. They saved weight in the aircraft by not having a duplicate backup hydraulic system for the controls. They actually had wires going to the controls from the rudder pedals and from the stick. Wow. So if the hydraulics failed, you could engage the wires and you would fly by wire. But to do that, you had an extension on the stick. You had to unscrew a lock and lift by the handle, lift the stick up to give you the leverage that you needed Got to you. Uh, control the elevators and the ailerons. So flying by wire today, what that means, it's all electronic and, and all servos and all servos that. And yeah. stuff like that. Gotcha. Video okay. games. Okay, gotcha. All right, well, that, that's neat, uh, neat information about the A-4, and it, it was the workhorse attack aircraft during uh, the Vietnam War. It, it flew more uh, attack missions than I think any other aircraft. They produced uh, almost 3,000 of those aircraft over the years. Um, the aircraft also was nuclear capable. Can you talk a little bit about that uh, capability that A4 had? A lot of people don't realize that the aircraft was contracted for and built specifically 
as a, an attack, atomic attack aircraft to carry the Mark 7 atomic weapon. In fact, that's why it's so high off the ground, because the Mark 7 was kind of a fat weapon, not streamlined. And the Ranger Mouse in 1958 to 1962, the primary mission of the attack aircraft were nuclear delivery, not conventional delivery. So we spent most of our time practicing loading uh, nuclear weapons, practicing nuclear weapon maneuvers, and maintaining our aircraft and equipping them for that mission. Okay. And how much, uh, how many weapons could this aircraft hold relative to a bomber from world, the World War II era, for example? The aircraft had four-wing hardpoints and a centerline uh, rack capability. It could carry as much as a B-17 fully loaded in World War II. That's amazing because the B-17 was a big aircraft, and this the A-4 is tiny, so it's one heck of an aircraft. It could carry twice its weight. And... Um, so as a very lightweight aircraft, the maximum takeoff weight was 24,500 pounds. So I imagine if you're going on a mission fully loaded down with, with a lot of ordnance, you're going to have to sacrifice a lot of fuel and take off with less than topped off tanks, maybe even half tanks. Uh, many times you will uh, specifically launched off with the uh, wing tanks empty and you would refuel as soon as you got to altitude to okay. then proceed on your mission. You're absolutely right. Okay, gotcha. And, and so speaking of refueling, aerial refueling, how hard was it to do in the A-4, and how often did you practice it? We practiced probably maybe once a month on aerial refueling, daylight and night, uh, nighttime. Daytime was uh, exciting because uh, you had to fly in the turbulence behind the aircraft you were refueling from. The probe and drogue were that short. So that became a very difficult type of an operation for us. Let's get in and, and start talking about uh, the actual training that you were doing now in the A-4, uh, in the RAG, uh, the Replacement Air Group Squadron at Lemoore, California. So um, when did that RAG form? Um, how long before the crews departed? Well, the RAG, uh, of course, was in continuous operation, and it had fundamentally three syllabi. One it had for nuggets that were just gotten their wings from the training aircraft and were phasing into combat aircraft before they went and joined their squadron, one syllabus for them. There was another syllabus for people like me that had maybe five, seven hundred hours and they had to bring us back up to speed. And then there was a senior officers for people who were going to be cycling back to become COs or air wing commanders and a, a briefer course for them. 
uh, I went through the mid-grade course, and it probably took about six months because it wasn't just flying. You had ground school to attend also, plus you had to do a week of survival school training in the midst of all that. And if there were certain gaps in your training, like you had never been a weapons loading officer, you'd have to go for a week and learn how to load special weapons on aircraft, that, that kind of Mickey Mouse. Okay. Um, and what type of training missions were you flying? Were, were, during, in the RAG, were, were you trying to simulate the type of missions that you were going to be flying over once you got to Vietnam, or were, were you just flying basic uh, aeronautical maneuvers? Well, all of the above on, on that particular question. The first thing you do is renew your instrument ticket in it. So you go through the instrument flight syllabus and get your uh, instrument card renewed. Then you would go off and refresh in basic uh, aerial techniques, rendezvous, formation flying, uh, idiot loops, nu- nuclear weapon delivery type of maneuvers. So you were practicing the nuclear weapons delivery uh, back in those days? Uh, even in the Vietnam War, we had a secondary mission. Each pilot was assigned at least one nuclear target, if not more. Okay. So uh, it, it depended on the number of people going through the rag at the time that you were going through, how fast you could go through it, because there were a lot of people transiting that particular squadron, like I described, for various purposes. So some days you would have three hops a day. Other days you would simply uh, sit around and wait with nothing to do because there were no aircraft available for you or no instructor. Yeah. Well, with, with a lot of the pilots that I know today in the military, Navy, Army, Air Force, uh, Marines, all of them, one of the biggest complaints I hear from them universally across the board is they just don't get very much flight time these days because of budget constraints. Did you feel like you had that issue even back in those days preparing for war, or did you really feel like you got all the flight time you needed to be proficient? In the time that uh, that I was with Ranger 58 to 62, there was such an emphasis on the nuclear mission that we got enough flight time to do what we needed. Um, we had good availability with the aircraft. Of course, with the Vietnam War, it was fit and start. Uh, you get towards the end of the fiscal year, and things were just buttoned and tightened down because people hadn't planned money right and you'd start running out of time. I was fortunate to go through the RAG, the replacement air group, at a time when it was mid-year and there was enough money for us to operate. But your observation is correct that this past year, the Air Force was shot, uh, short 2,400 pilots and their pilots had left because they weren't getting any more than four hours of flight time a month. Yeah, that's crazy. Stupid. Yeah. So as far as the training that you're doing in the RAG, that's when we were living in Lemoore, California at that time, so out in the desert. Did you do all the training right there centrally located over the desert, or were you traveling during during that time in the RAG? 
during uh, that workup period, we were traveling most of the time. We were going to Fallon, Nevada, where we had a naval air station and we had a whole range of various bombing targets we could use. We would go out for one to three weeks on board our assigned ship. Mine was the Ticonderoga uh, to help the sh uh, ship get used to us, us to get used to the ship, uh, requalify day and night carrier landings, and then practice missions flying from the ship two to 300 miles off the coast uh, into the bombing ranges in Nevada. So we were working our butts off. Okay. Um and, and so how long did you say again now this time in the RAG was before you transferred into your squatter in the Golden Dragons? It was about six months for me. Six months? Okay. And when you transferred into the world-famous Golden Dragons, the squadron you were with when you deployed on Ticonderoga to head over to Vietnam, did... Uh, everyone else uh, joined the squadron at the same time, or did people uh, kind of trickle in until you got up to a full capability just prior to deployment, or was there a certain period of time where everybody was assigned and you all started training together? People trickled in and out over the period of the summer. It was a it was a pretty quick. Uh, turnaround, less than a year turnaround for uh, the world-famous Golden Dragons, the squadron I joined. So they had people that were were finished their tours, were trickling out. They were waiting for people like myself to come in from the RAG. Um, it was an unsettled period throughout the whole summer, and it was probably not until September that we had a full complement of the people we were going to deploy September of 66? September of that Right. And when did the ship actually leave for October. the deployment? Wow. So right up until the last minute, you're getting new people. We were carrier calling nuggets, two nuggets, on the way across the Pacific with no bingo fields. Wow. That's crazy. And how long... Uh, prior to the deployment. So you, you left on the deployment on Ticonderoga in October of 1966, heading to Vietnam. When did you report to the world-famous Golden Dragons? I reported probably around 30 June. Okay. So you, you, you had a little bit of time then. And what was going on during that time between June and uh, October, when you deployed, what did the training look like uh, as uh, the flying training that you were getting during that period of time? Well, the flying training that I was getting during that uh, period of time was spasmodic at best because I was also the maintenance officer, and we were turning in all our aircraft and receiving new aircraft. So I, I had to oversee that operation, which ate up a lot of time. Um, I got enough time to to be qualified because that's what the type of training they were undergoing. In other words, you'd you'd get qualified for strafing, you'd get qualified for air-to-ground uh, rockets, air-to-ground bombs, nuclear weapons delivery. There were uh, nighttime uh, and daytime carrier landings. Get qualified for nighttime refueling, daytime refueling. Um, so there were all these blocks that had to be checked off 
and get you ready for an operational readiness inspection. And, and you have to kind of laugh at that because you were going to go to war whether you pass the inspection or not. But, <laughs> you know, and right. the staffs have to administer something. So we had the operational readiness inspection. Yeah, it's, it's not like people were tanking their tests so they could get out of the deployment. You got to better do as best you can because you're going one way or another. Absolutely. Okay. Why not? Um, so how much training during this time that this um, – it's about a, a four to five month period that you had with the squadron um, prior to departure. How much joint training was done with the squadron uh, and the Ticonderoga? Uh, were there frequent deployments off the shore of California uh, where you would you would work uh, offshore during that time? Well, probably every month we were gone for one or two weeks. Because, let's face it, the fighter aircraft were all based down in Miramar uh, by San Diego. And the heavy attack people who were up in Whidbey Island, this is, you know, typical Mr. McNamara with a single base loading, broke up all the air wings and spread them across the whole West Coast. So the only time we could get together to operate as an air wing was when we were on board ship and maybe one deployment up at uh, Fallon, Nevada. Okay. Um, I really want to talk about, uh, some of the weapons for a minute. Uh, I know we already talked about the wi a wide range of weapons that it, it can carry, but specifically, uh, I want to ask about the Aero 7D, uh, rocket pack. Uh, that's the rocket pack that, uh, you had a problem with, uh, in, in your bad day and it, it caused your plane to explode. And the Aero 7D rocket pack is a Korean War vintage um, uh, weapon that did not have a good track record. Did you guys get any opportunity to train with that weapon during the workup period, uh, either in the RAG or in the squadron prior to deploying to Vietnam? I never had a chance in the training cycle to operate with the uh, Aero 7D rocket pack. The, we fabricated a four-round, uh, we call it, you know, organ pipe rocket container where we could fire rockets, practice against targets, individual 2.75-inch rockets. And that's what we trained with. Uh, we did not train with the actual pack itself. Uh, the, that weapon was designed as an air-to-air -air weapon to be used against a, a Russian bomber. The idea being that if you couldn't quite catch up to them, then you can blast sort of like a shotgun. Right. And and uh, the idea was that you uh, one of these Hummers would do some damage at it. And as a result, they stuffed 19 of them into a pack. And it's a folding fin aerial rocket. To get 19 in, you have to fold the fins in. And the, the weapon was unreliable. The fins always didn't come out, which means rockets didn't stabilize. And right. the warheads didn't always go off. So uh, it, we, we didn't like it. Also, it needed to have a fragile... Uh, plastic cone to streamline it. Otherwise, you were running around with uh, a, a speed brake underneath your wing. 
So when you put that cone on the front to streamline it and make it more aerodynamic, obviously you'd have to take that cone off. The cone would have to come off before you fired the weapon. How, how would you eject that cone uh, from, the, from the pod? Oh, you notice I said it was fragile. Oh, so you just fired right you through fire it. fire right through it. Okay, gotcha. Um, all right, so um, anything else significant uh, that you think uh, is noteworthy during the workup period and the training while in the world-famous uh, Golden Dragons prior to uh, the deployment on the Ticonderoga? No, I can't think of any... Okay. Anything we missed. Well, then let's talk about the Ticonderoga then, because that, that's another big element that I, I've gotten a lot of questions. I got a lot of emails, a lot of text messages, a lot of people messaged me on Facebook and said, you, you, ha- you didn't talk about the weapons a lot. You didn't talk about the aircraft. So we've talked about the A-4 now. And also, we didn't talk a whole lot about the aircraft carrier. You were on the USS Ticonderoga CV-14. Um, talk a little bit about the Ticonderoga. The Ticonderoga was built during World War II. And unlike today's carriers, its deck was made of wood. The main strength member of the Tyco's hull Uh, was the hangar deck. So the flight deck were just planks of wood. Uh, Also, it had expansion joints. The ship was designed to bend with the flight deck uh, not being an integral part of the hull. It had to bend with the typhoons and the pressures that were uh, exerted on uh, on the flight deck. So you had two expansion joints where when it rained out or when you had water coming over the deck, water would come in through the expansion joints. Now, the forward expansion joints just happened to be over our staterooms. Really? (laughs) So when it rained out outside, it rained out inside in your stateroom. (laughs) Interesting. All right. (laughs) So that that was an interesting part of it. People say, well, my goodness, it was a, a small... A small vessel, I think, when it was launched, it probably was down around 45,000 tons, and they added an angle deck to it, and they keep adding stuff, so the weight, you'd have to figure out what year you're talking about as to how heavy it was. But when you stop and think about it, an aircraft only needs about 500 feet, tailhook aircraft, to land with a four-wire landing area. Right. So you can land on the Saipan just as well as you can land on the Ranger Mouse. It just requires the same amount of space. Now, a larger deck is more forgiving, granted. Right. Uh, for the poor enlisted men that do all the work, now, we, we talk about a, what, a, what a nifty bunch of uh, people we aviators are, and we are. We are a magnificent lot. But if it weren't for the enlisted men, we'd never be able to fly. These guys are pushing the airplanes all over the place. They're loading them ammunition. They're they're fueling it. They're putting the oxygen in the system. Uh, they are hooking you up to the catapult. They are releasing you from the arresting gear. They're maintaining your 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 aircraft while you're asleep. I mean, God love them. They they really profit from a big flight deck like the Gerald L. Ford now and stuff like that. Right. 
And so a, a couple of other really significant things about the Ticonderoga that you did not mention, and you said it was built during World War II. It was actually engaged in combat in World War II, and it was hit by two kamikazes in uh, January of 1945 and had to be sent back stateside for repairs. And um, they got it back on on the front line within about four months. They brought it all the way back from... Um, from the waters around Japan all the way back to Puget Sound, got it repaired and back on the front line within four months. So they were working really quick. Um, also, um, later, it was uh, involved in the recovery efforts uh, for the Apollo 16 and 17 astronauts before finally being decommissioned and then later sold for scrap in 1973, right around the time you were coming back from Vietnam. Absolutely. So um, it, it, it was an outstanding ship, but by today's standards, the USS uh, Gerald Ford you mentioned, um, the Gerald Ford's about 300 feet longer than the Ticonderoga and displaces almost four times uh, the, the, uh, the water that, that the Ticonderoga did. So... Um, by by modern standards for a carrier, the Ticonderoga was not that big, and, and I could imagine making a carrier landing back in those days. It's scary enough as today, but back in those days, you're going to be looking at a much smaller flight deck that you're coming into. Well, if you're looking at the flight deck, and we were talking about day versus night landings. The reason I like night landings better was I didn't chase the deck. A flight deck, even of a carrier that's 100,000 tons, wiggles uh, like some sort of a floozy uh, doing a Hawaiian dance. I mean, <laughs> it, it slides left and right, bounces up and down, wiggles its butt at you. And if you start looking at the deck, you start chasing it, and you're going to miss the wire. you got to keep your eye on the... Um, on the ball, literally on the ball, the landing signal device, and make sure that you are lined up and listen to the landing signal officer. Now, in the dark, you don't see all that bouncing. All you see uh, are the lights outlining the the landing area and the lens system that gives you the glide path that you need to be on. So you're not tempted to, to chase something around. But going back to the size of the ship, you realize whether it's the Ticonderoga or uh, the Gerald Ford, you got about 5,000 people on those ships. I mean, there's, you've got to put them somewhere. You need all those people to make the ship run. And it, you're dealing with a small city. Right, absolutely. I mean, you've got a post office. You've got a, uh, a soda shop. We call it a ghee dunk. We, we have a... A, a Navy exchange shop. Uh, we have uh, a barber shop. I mean, all of these functions that human beings need to operate to take care of the folks that are on the ship. Um, how, how about food? Food's real important to everybody. Um, where did you eat on the ship every day? As a pilot, uh, as a member of the world-famous Golden Dragons, where did you guys eat every day? Well, we had two wardrooms. We had them uh, 
down below the uh, the hangar deck, we had uh, the main ward room, and that was usually for the senior officers. And the junior officers were up under the catapults on the forward part of the ship in uh, animal territory. Um, they had a buffet line for people to eat in their flight suits if they had to make a flight schedule. And another part of that ward room was geared for sit-down evening meals or for movies after the meals were over. And in the evening meal, you would eat in coat and tie. You'd have a service dress khaki. You would sit down in your assigned place. The stewards would have your napkins out next to your place. Every napkin had a number. In fact, you used to tell you that your seniority, which was important, is who's, you know, who's in charge. Right. It was your napkin number. You could more easily tell who was senior by where you sat at the table. Uh, for the officers, you paid a mess bill. Uh, to the uh, officer's mess. The president of the mess was the exec of the ship. And with that money, you would buy food. Usually you'd buy it from the ship's stores, uh, supply. But uh, when you left port, or when you hit port like Hong Kong, you could buy some fresh nifty stuff. But when you're eating stuff that's left over from Korea and previous buys and lowest bidder, Food was kind of lousy, to tell you the truth. So that that was going to be the next question I asked: is how is the food? And I'm actually surprised at this. So the food the food was not that good. The officers' food wasn't that good because people running the mess were a bunch of cheapskates and didn't want to spend the money. The enlisted mess was good. In fact, we had a couple of guys in the squadron just stay in their flight gear and they go through the enlisted line. Get their food down there. Yeah. The, All right. The, the enlisted right. guys, thank God, were, were well-fed. Well, that sounds like there uh, were some Marines on the ship then. Always take care of the Marines first before the officers. That's you got the, it. Well, uh, obviously, um, none of us starved to death, so it couldn't be as bad as we keep making it out. There, there you go. Um, and you talked about church uh, on a, uh, another podcast that you and I did together. You talked about you and your best friend, Mike Astotian, would go to church every day. You would go to daily mass. Was there a chapel on the ship that, that you attended mass in, or did you have to do a makeshift uh, setup? There was no chapel on the Tycho. We had a um, mass which was held, held on the focusle between the anchor chains. They would set up folding chairs, and uh, the altar was up by the hossa pipes where the two chains went through to the anchors. Um, the priest would say uh, a good 17-minute mass and two-minute sermon, so he'd get, <laughs> he'd get you in and, and out of there. But any time that we weren't on the flight schedule, both Mike and I would, uh, would go to mass. We sure needed all the help we could get. Yeah, we all do. Um, how about your stateroom, where, where you slept? Did you, um, did you have a roommate, or did you have your own room? Oh, I had a roommate. Uh, actually, 27 Charlie, when it was first made, all junior officers, Lieutenant Junior Grade and Ensigns, lived in a bunk room up underneath the catapults, uh, the J.O. <laughs> bunk room. Well, eventually they divided these up into so-called staterooms, and what they did was they built a little partition from the passageway and, and put a green heavy curtain over it and stuffed in two bunks and two desks 
and two closets and room for a fiddler crab to, to, to walk into the space. So the stateroom was a misnomer for anybody less than a commander. So when you and your roommate, uh, you, you had a top bunk and, and a bottom bunk, and you guys were just basically really stuffed in there. Did you, did you have uh, any space for privacy for yourself, like uh, a desk where you could organize your papers and sit and write letters? Or did- Each had a, dre- a desk, and on that desk had a uh, small safe for uh, confidential material that okay. you, could, you could lock in there. Um, and it also served as your dresser draws underneath the okay um so now in october of 1966 uh all your training is done the world famous golden dragons are ready to deploy uh you had you got all your aircraft loaded up uh on the ticonderoga prior to uh the day of depart day of departure and you flew an additional aircraft out because you were the maintenance officer. Can can you tell me about that? Well, every once in a, every squadron, every outfit has a hangar queen, has a, an aircraft that um, basically you rob parts from to keep other airplanes up and stuff like that. This one we were unable to fly out and land on board the ship when she was at sea. So being the maintenance officer, I had to fly this turkey down to North Island and we'd tow it over from North Island's airfield to North Island's pier and get a crane and load it on board our ship. So that's, that was my assignment for that day. And then you, you flew it from Lemoore down to San Diego. Uh, they loaded it on the ship, and then the Ticonderoga left from San Diego, headed toward, uh, towards Japan, or towards, uh, yeah, towards Japan first. Uh, prior to going to Vietnam. Did you stop in Hawaii on the way? Most deploying uh, ships do stop in Hawaii. They they pick up a whole mess of stuff from um, Commander-in-Chief Pacific that's based out there. You get a, a lot of final briefings. In the old days, we used to fly nuclear weapons from out to sea into Barber's Point, and uh, that would be the final step in the... Um, operational readiness inspection to see if they were loaded properly and if we had all the equipment properly and if we flew the mission properly. So it, it just became tradition to stop there. Okay. Did it, in addition to the training, the last minute uh, workups and, and, and the last uh, training exercises that you did in Hawaii, did you get any liberty in Hawaii? We got a couple of nights ashore, and we uh, most of us hang out at the Mexican uh, Mexican village. That was San Diego, the Hawaiian village. Okay, we'd hang out of that uh, place. Uh, it was short liberty. Uh, we actually did some flying uh, bombing practice, and as I mentioned, we had two Nuggets that joined us just as the ship was leaving. We had to get them some flight time, and get them some field carrier landing practice. So we were busy. Okay. And uh, when when y'all left Hawaii, then then you went straight uh, to Japan after that. And how long did you stay in Japan until you um, departed for Vietnam? Well, I think we uh, we offloaded uh, some equipment at uh, Naval Air Station at Sugi in Japan, outside of Tokyo. 
probably were in there maybe three days and then turned around and headed for Yankee Station uh, off of uh, North Vietnam. Okay. And, and we've covered all that stuff in, um, in other podcasts, and we'll talk more uh, about that in the future. So this has really been interesting, and I appreciate you going through this today. I'm looking at my watch here. And uh, I'm looking at the time really closely. I've got something for you over there. Do you want it? Yes, I do. You want a bourbon? I will have some bourbon. I I will suffer. All right. I love you. Love you, pal. God bless. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. We would greatly appreciate it if you would share the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast with all your friends you think might enjoy it. You can also help us by giving the podcast a five-star review on your podcast player and by actually leaving a written review as well. Podcast players recommend new podcasts to users based on those reviews. You can listen to our podcast on all the major podcast players, including the Apple and Google podcast apps, Radio Public, and Spotify. Just search for Yankee Air Pirate in your podcast player. Make sure you click on follow, then go into settings on your device and find notifications and turn that on so you will be notified each time we upload a new episode of the Yankee Air Pirate. Thanks again for listening to the Yankee Air Pirate podcast, Semper Fi.